Hi everyone, this is Hita Unnikrishnan for the In Common Podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. In today's episode, Michael and I are in conversation with Dustin Garrick, who is an associate professor at the School of Environment, Resources and Sustainability at the University of Waterloo, Canada, and a research fellow at Green Templeton College, University of Oxford. We discussed how his passion for rivers led Dustin to move between theory and practice to understand the scope and limits of water markets as part of struggles towards more sustainable water management. Starting in the Colorado and Columbia rivers of North America, Dustin's work has led to a broader intellectual project to examine the institutional diversity and evolution of water markets, working with a network of partners across the world to understand whether and under which conditions different resource users and communities can use markets without being abused by them. We also spoke about the critiques of some predominant market-based approaches to natural resource governance such as the cap-and-trade systems and more free market environmentalism. We touched upon some of his more recent work on informal water markets and his growing interest in collective action across the rural-urban divide, which led to the development of a global database on rural-urban water conflict and cooperation that he has been developing along with some of his colleagues. Dustin also reflected upon his engagement with large international development organizations such as the World Bank, OECD and global conservation organizations. He stressed that these organizations are not monolithic entities. They are composed of groups of people with varied perspectives, interests and expertise, including many who share a focus on political economy and informality. Yet, these organizations also face practical and political constraints that can lead to panacea thinking and otherwise limit the range of institutions and interests considered. We ended with a note on the importance of developing and diversifying one's mentoring networks while forging our own academic and non-academic pathways and trajectories. Throughout this interview, we were especially struck by his sense of humility in discussing academic trajectories as well as his willingness to offer pastoral support and mentoring for those who need it from him. We really enjoyed speaking with Dustin and hope that you will find this conversation as engaging and thought-provoking as we did. Thanks so much, Dustin, for joining us. This has been wonderful. We were looking at some of your work, your trajectory and so on, and it looks like you've had a big interest in uh, water markets, informalities for quite some time. So, uh, for example, your PhD thesis was on transaction costs and water markets. I was just hoping to start this interview with, uh, with you asking you about what your trajectory has been like and how you got interested in what you're doing? Well, thanks. I uh, started my work on environmental and water governance from a passion uh, for sustainability and rivers in particular. I had a uh, initial job out of my master's program working for a very uh, litigious and advocacy-based conservation organization. And uh, became disillusioned with the the zero sum kind of winner take all per, you know perspective of these conservation groups and decided to go back uh, to get my PhD at the University of Arizona where I to be completely honest was primarily motivated by the opportunity to learn Spanish and to work on my passion for water and rivers um, and I had an initial project focused in the Colorado River Basin which is shared by Mexico and the U.S. and a number of different uh, tribal nations on both sides of the border. 
and was starting out to do some work on binational restoration of the Delta, which was really fundamental to the ecology and the economy and the cultures along uh, the river, and particularly uh, on the borderlands shared between the U.S. and Mexico. And uh, at that time, the discussions around the Colorado River, this is keeping in mind about 20 years ago now, 2002, 2003, uh, was just starting its um, process of confronting uh, unsustainable demand, the impacts of climate change, uh, and a sustained drought, which is now seen as kind of aridification and drying. And uh, in these early stages, battle lines were pretty well drawn and that different, different uh, you know, people holding water rights were, were trying to defend their position. And that meant the prospects for restoring the Delta were quite limited. So I started uh, to, to look around other parts of the Western US at the time, uh, places that have been trying to address the similar problem of, of, uh, of water conflict and water conflicts between uh, not just cities and agriculture, but cities, agriculture, environment, communities. And so I stumbled upon a case study about uh, the Oregon Water Trust, which was starting up its work uh, in the Pacific Northwest and had been experimenting with market-based water rights acquisitions which involved uh, the acquisition of water from farmers principally through short-term leases or permanent purchases uh, to retire or otherwise change the water rights uh, to restore in-stream flows for principally salmon habitat and other fisheries. So I basically started the journey there with the perspective of how can I learn from the Oregon experience to address these problems that I care about in, in Arizona and throughout the Colorado River Basin. At the time, I really was still ambivalent about an academic career. And maybe if I'm being completely honest, I still wonder what I'll do when I grow up. Um, but but if, if it could be useful in terms of solving a problem uh, that I cared about, then I was motivated. And so I started to scope a PhD project examining across the Pacific Northwest uh, the use of these kinds of, of programs, which they're described as kind of transactional programs. Uh, they involve a, a, you know, nominally voluntary um, exchange or transaction between willing buyers and willing sellers, and in practice uh, relied on both public and private funding, uh, nonprofit groups, state agencies, even federal acquisitions uh, to, to enter the marketplace on behalf of the environment. So I wanted to see how this was working. And, uh, and there was a really striking line from this case study writ written by Janet Newman, who was uh, a lawyer serving as uh, both faculty at, I think, uh, Reed College, but also president of the board for the Oregon Water Trust, mm -hmm. who wrote up a law review paper on the Oregon Water Trust's first 10 years, which was described as the good, the bad, and the ugly and basically reflecting on the initial idea or even ideology of free market environmentalism, uh, which is this kind of virtuous cycle, presuming that defining property rights as private rights and making them tradable will um, automatically align the kind of private stewardship of uh, these agricultural lands with the public interest in their sustainability and restoration. And uh, the key is getting the property rights right. And so she reflected 10 years on with this biting line, that was then, this is now. And so my project was entering in this space of trying to understand this gap between 
the theory and practice of of water markets in general and particularly their application to environmental flow restoration. And I uh, started up the, the project at the same time had been going through my, my field exams, my comprehensive exams at Arizona and working at the intersection of institutional economics and law and economics and doing a lot of reading of things um, from institutional economists like Oliver Williamson and and Coase and Douglas North alongside uh, the, um, the, the kind of insights from collective action theory and commons governance. And so I, I sense there was this intersection there, but again, I'm still quite at that stage, uh, quite um, cautious about uh, theory. And I remember I would describe to my uh, advisor, I've got theoretical reflux disease. And, uh, and she, she uh, responded in a bemused, and very patient way. Um, don't worry, uh, this is path dependent. You don't have much of a choice. And just the notion that I would continue on. Um, so I, I was working on kind of bridging this gap between theory and practice, setting up my PhD project, and then simultaneously working with local groups in Arizona and conservation organizations um, that were building from the land trust movement, applying the same ideas of, as the water trust, acquiring property rights for conservation interests, but focused principally on land. And I was saying, I'm learning about this stuff in, in Oregon, including the stuff that they got wrong. Large part, large part of it was um, in the initial days of these um, water trusts and, and other kind of market-based schemes for river restoration in the Pacific Northwest, they took an approach that one of uh, the practitioners described as a surgical strike. They would go in um, and keep in mind at the time, this was in the Iraq war and the terminology was being used um, to describe these really precision, these really precise attacks. And they, they, their mindset was they'd go in and they provide uh, a deal to farmers who were considered by the, by the conservation groups to be marginal in the first place. And uh, it would just be a really easy transaction, but they were struggling to embed that within local collaborations, local collective action and conflicts. And uh, it, was, it was done in a fairly isolated way. And so I was coming back in Arizona saying, I'm learning about uh, these programs and the importance of getting the governance right and embedding uh, these markets within uh, you know, governance at, at multiple levels. And so we were applying those insights of the development or the expansion of this land trust to uh, the Arizona Land and Water Trust. And so I was basically seeing in real time how uh, my empirical research, you know, guided by these theoretical perspectives, had much more impact um, in, in terms of solving the problems that I cared about. In other words, it wasn't a kind of choice of theory development or practical insight that the two were mutually reinforcing. And this is obvious to all of us, but this is just my experience. And sure enough, the path dependency took hold and I became really interested in this wider project of um, kind of exploring and understanding the institutional diversity of markets. Because one of the things that I found from my PhD work is I was able to look at uh, this region, the Pacific Northwest, and like de disaggregate or decompose the social ecological system of this river basin uh, into uh, sub-basins where there was an alignment between the eco-hydrological unit of, of watershed management and the administrative units for water rights. And I was basically able to, to look at the variation in terms of the design, the evolution, the performance of markets across the basin 
and found that that surgical strike story was just one version of markets and uh, that there were others which were place-based and where um, the idea was that you know markets are the servants of the governance uh, rather than the master and they played a relatively um, targeted role alongside a whole range of other planning processes and um, you know self-governance and other mechanisms for coordination um, between local and and, and broader uh, interest in the, the basin. And so um, the, the analysis from my PhD show that we need to move beyond a kind of caricature of, of markets as uh, the kind of free market environmental aversion and study uh, how they actually work. So my way of doing that uh, was, you mentioned transaction costs. Um, was that when I started my scoping process for the field work and uh, my, my research is mostly qualitative, but like a lot of scholars of commons governance, it's multi-method and triangulated and with the view of trying to um, identify blind spots or to corroborate kind of insights um, by bringing together different perspectives. And so my, my research was trying to bring together really qualitative uh, research involving process tracing of archival documents, as well as um, interviews and questionnaires and surveys with the different practitioners and participants involved in these uh, water transactions. And um, combining that alongside with financial data, geospatial data uh, to uh, understand these, these markets and how they were working. And during my scoping phase of research, I was talking to a lot of practitioners and everyone kept referencing this uh, term transaction costs, right? You know, Oliver Williamson describes it as the economic equivalent of friction and, uh, and others, you know, describe it as the, the cost of the resources associated with defining, uh, transferring, monitoring, and enforcing property rights. And in conceptual terms, it all sounded really, really straightforward. But as I heard this term, it seemed like a black box that was the kind of residual factor that explained why these markets weren't working. And so I saw transaction costs, that kind of economic world of friction as um, a, a, a space that would contain a lot of insights in terms of how institutions worked, uh, how patterns of conflict and cooperation um, were evolving in these markets. And uh, I set out about trying to measure transaction costs in relation to different, you know, variation in institutional arrangements for these markets, how the property rights were developed, how you know wider collaborative governance processes were being designed, um, and uh, and so a measuring transaction costs in relation to these variations in institutional development and, and their performance. And I remember at the time that speaking with practitioners, I said, "Yeah, good luck measuring these transaction costs." So in the style, like many of us um, went through the process of conceptualizing and operationalizing and then coming up with an indicator framework approach for measuring these costs and spent a lot of time with forensic accounting of uh, budgets for the different uh, participants in these transactions, the buyers, the sellers, and uh, the third parties, including kind of regulatory agencies involved in overseeing these transactions and was able to develop a, a five-year um, time series of, of data on transaction costs for the period, the kind of early stages of implementing these programs across the Columbia Basin. And uh, was, uh, was able to get an initial sense of the trends and trajectories related to these transaction costs. And so the free market environmental 
uh, notion would be that we need to get the property rights right. And one sign of that would be to minimize, reduce um, transaction costs. And, uh, and so I would go in with the expectation that the regions where the most water had been recovered for these programs were ones where uh, the property rights were, were clearly defined and transferable administrative capacity to support those transfers and enforce them. Um, and so you'd be looking at performance in terms of the combination of high levels of water recovery, um, relatively low transaction costs and sufficient uh, organizational capacity or program budgets to get to scale, whatever that meant within these watersheds. And so I did find uh, a few of the case studies that relatively higher water recovery with low transaction costs and they kind of fit the model. And they were largely concentrated in Western Montana where uh, the property rights uh, were managed by relatively local groups and um, with limited um, reinforcement from state agencies and kind of capacity to administer and, and quantify and, and support these rights. Um, versus another result where there were sub-basins that had achieved relatively high levels of water recovery, but also had among the highest transaction costs. So there are two responses. One is that your measure of transaction costs isn't valid. You know, maybe you're capturing other things um, in this black box. Um, but the other is that um, these groups were not just implementing transactions. They were investing simultaneously in um, strengthening governance, ad addressing conflicts, building institutions, all the stuff that we know um, you can't minimize if you want to have uh, a viable, sustainable um, policy or, or institutional response. And so um, that divergence in, in terms of uh, performance showed me that getting to scale and being able to sustain scale uh, over a long period was likely to depend on these parallel investments and in what, what I described as transition costs. And I assumed that there would be um, these kind of cycles of, of developing um, market-related institutions and then adapting to the ongoing conflicts and um, failures that they had involved, uh, but that they would really depend on um, this parallel process of trying to implement uh, transactions, but, but build institutions and strengthen them. And so with five years of data coming out of the Columbia Basin, my natural next question, this is at the time where a lot of, uh, of the commons governance community was really focusing on this question of scaling up large scale collective action. I was interested in um, other places in the world where they had tried uh, to, to build these institutions and to uh, address challenges of water, river restoration and water scarcity uh, at, a, at a large scale, at a basin scale. And I applied for a fellowship to do a comparative study between the Columbia Basin and the Murray Darling of Southern Australia, which uh, at the time, this is into kind of late knots uh, around the global financial crisis. And I went down there into Australia in 2010. Um, this was seen as the gold standard, like the poster child of panacea thinking about cap and trade water markets applied to problems of, of irrigation and competition between irrigation and other sectors. Um, to the, sen the sense of just a sense of kind of context, this region is a basin that is over 1 million square kilometers. Um, like the Colorado River, where I had started my journey, shared by multiple jurisdictions. Um, 
with the legacy of kind of marginalizing and excluding Aboriginal peoples and with kind of ex initial experiences adapting to climate change at that stage. And, uh, and I, I spent uh, a year there on a fellowship uh, to basically learn how they had done all these excellent things and how they had developed a plan at the basin level uh, to uh, adopt a cap and trade system that would achieve sustainable water management by establishing the cap and provide flexibility uh, by allowing the, the irrigators and different users to exchange their water rights in response to shifting uh, patterns of supply and demand and, and all the kind of standard economic theory. And when I got there, I was arriving in the tail end of what was called the millennium drought. So one of the most severe uh, and sustained dry periods on the observed record. And um, at the stage where they were developing that first step or updating that first step in the economic theory, which is getting the cap right. So this would involve identifying sustainable diversion limits, kind of the equivalent for those studying uh, fisheries of the total allowable catch, you know, some measure of um, the uh, sustainable, you know, resource base. And I arrived there expecting to see a, a story of uh, effective basin-wide planning uh, combined with uh, the incentives from the market, uh, you know, addressing these large-scale problems. And when I arrived within a month, there were you know, demonstrations of irrigators burning the plan and the first stages of major political backlash uh, because the sustainable diversion limits were uh, designed to update uh, historic extraction levels, which were already unsustainable and would require um, a, a kind of net reduction in, in water use across the basin, concentrated unevenly um, in different parts of the basin. And so where I, you know, went there expecting to see some insights about how you nest governance and how you achieve large scale collective action, uh, I found uh, that um, this was a really important example of taking the political economy and the distributional conflicts uh, seriously associated with these markets. And one of the, the key um, insights from the Murray-Darling experience is that they had uh, really strong capacity from the government and regulatory kind of interventions to set up these markets, um, but they had really failed in ways that some of the examples in the Columbia Basin had um, in terms of embedding these markets within uh, local uh, communities and uh, the you know, existing you know, interest and in, in views of those groups. Uh, so it was kind of a story of the like Goldilocks where the Columbia Basin was um, developing some interesting experiments, but struggling to scale, uh, whereas the Murray-Darling was, was scaling up, um, but, but lacking that capacity on the ground and support on the ground. And uh, so then I finished the, the work in the Murray-Darling and did a comparative analysis of the Columbia Basin and, and the Murray-Darling, um, basically uh, highlighting uh, the importance of uh, embedding these markets within wider processes of governance, which might be described now in terms of hybrid governance and so forth. And I was ready, like most of the world, to look at the 
uh, emerging failure at the time in, in Australia as a sign that, you know, this is the latest panacea that has um, fallen away with, uh, with water markets and, and that the rest of the world would, would learn the lesson and um, move on to, you know, more, uh, more, you know, complex and nuanced um, range of, of alternatives and ways of thinking about institutions and governance. Um, again, you know, what we talk about now in terms of, of hybrids and so forth. Uh, and I did take a break from working on water markets for a, a while, um, but a couple of things brought me back. Um, one is that I, I was asked to do a project for the World Bank, and I uh, had the opportunity to review the literature on informal markets. And I realized all of a sudden that I had been really just scratching the tip of the iceberg with my work in rich countries with you know, specific legal frameworks where um, they, you know, were implementing or adopting uh, these kind of economic policies straight out of the textbook. Whereas in many parts of the world, these informal markets were um, developing in uh, the absence of uh, state capacity or direct defiance of it, or in the, the in terms of uh, gaps in basic services where entrepreneurs were stepping in. And I realized there was a whole, you know, wider world of, of institutional diversity um, that was relevant to this question. And I've since been doing a lot of work on trying to um, understand the kind of prevalence and diversity of these informal markets and the ways that they can be governed. And I think now I would summarize the research question of this work as um, how we can design, you know, institutions to uh, use markets without being abused by them. I think there's a tendency from uh, the, the existing research to be fairly polarized to either say that you know markets are a panacea or markets are inherently bad and i think both are equally dangerous because they're reductionist and so i see my work and my motivation now as kind of working in this uh the space of um you know trying to um communicate with both sides of that spectrum and come up with an alternative understanding of, of markets, institutions, their political economy. I'll stop there. Cause I mean, there's so much I could talk about and it becomes a little bit more interesting if we maybe dig in a little bit uh, to, to some of the other material. So let me just pause, see what you're thinking. That was really great, Dustin. I have a couple uh, follow-up questions for you about markets. Um, I mean, you've been touching on them on the topics I'd like to talk to you about already. So I'll just outline them very briefly and then I'll, I'll try to unpack them a little bit. So I basically wanna ask you about, as you were just saying, panaceas, I'd like to ask you about outcomes. Like what are the, what are the outcomes we think we're trying to achieve with markets? Cause I think that's a part of this uncertainty and disagreement. And the other, I'd like to ask you a bit more about path dependence. Cause I know you, you were talking about path dependence and you've written about it. And I saw in one of your papers, you cite Graham Marshall, whose book I read, his 2005 book I read, and he talks about the relationship between property rights and path dependence. So starting with panaceas, I think you're exactly right that a, you know, a big part of the discourse about markets has just been, it's gotten stuck in this unhelpful space of group-based thinking, where it's you're either pro-market or you're anti-market. And you're intellectual position on markets correlates with the group you're in. So you're either pro or anti. And then, and then we just, you know, all of our groupish thinking gets in the way and, and our, and our 
actual intellectual arguments can get muddled. And so I'm just, I'm wondering kind of how you navigate that. You, you know, you've been talking about water markets and in an email to us, you mentioned that you've also been at least curious about the application um, to uh, fisheries. And that's something I know a bit more about, even though I started in water. And in fisheries, there absolutely is a panacea mindset with respect to individual transferable quotas um, within the United States. And I know it's been extended and I didn't start in the United States, but it's certainly uh, quite strong here. I once gave a talk, um, you know, one of these innumerable Zoom talks that we all give during the pandemic. And my argument was that I care as much about process as I do about the modality. So I use like Lynn Ostrom's design principles as an example. It's, mm -hmm. And what I was saying is I care less about whether it's a market or a park or whatever we're doing as I care about are these principles being implemented as a part of this governance system. And when you said, you know, markets should be the servants of governance rather than the master, that really resonated with me very strongly. And I even texted Tahita in the chat that that's a very powerful phrase. Because I think that's where we often go wrong as a part of this panacea thinking, where we say it has to be a market, it has to be a certain type of market, and everything else needs to adapt to that rather than, okay, how do we get this market type arrangement to adapt to the needs of the system? So, and, and the response to me saying this by someone who I later learned was very pro ITQ in the US was, well, that's all, that's very nice and academic, but I don't see how that helps us. Which, I, you know, I was surprised by in the moment. Um, but if, to me, it was kind of an opening to this kind of panacea thinking where it's, if it's, it really closes down the, the challenge of panacea thinking is that it makes it harder to have these discussions. And so I guess the way I'll put this into a question for this first question I have about panaceas is, do you kind of see yourself as a bit of almost like a boundary actor or a cross-cultural science broker between these different groups? I mean, it sounds like you must be getting, uh, do, do both groups not like you <laughs> at different times? <laughs> Oh, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I think of, I think if I were to tell my children the answer to this question, I would say I'm a double agent. Um, but I see myself as, and and I've only recently come to this realization, by the way, um, as as an interstitial economist. And um, there are a few kind of labels or badges that I've struggled with or resisted. One is um, that I'm an economist, and the second is that I focus on water. And I can come back to either of those if it makes sense. But in the context of, of economics, um, yeah, I do see myself as trying to um, inform, engage um, debates within uh, kind of two worlds. And I'll come back to those two worlds in a moment, uh, as well as, as build connections and alternatives um, to them in, ref in relation to uh, them. Uh, so I guess the two worlds are uh, world one would be let's call it conventional economics, although I hate the term conventional because I think it just privileges neoclassical economics in a way that's not really reflecting of re reflecting the diversity within economics. Um, it's a pet peeve of mine when I see people talk about or even tweet saying, oh, economists, they don't read outside of their literature or whatever. I know a lot of economists, a lot of them are enlightened. And um, one sign of that is they're talking to me. Um, but I'm, but I'm in seriousness, uh, I sense that 
uh, there's a lot more receptivity and interest in um, the blind spots of markets or economics, um, the nature of externalities. I mean, however you want to talk about it within the field of economics. And I see my task as helping to first, you know, communicate some of the science and and evidence around collective action in the context of markets um, and the collective action in the context of of governance more broadly and how that would apply to some of the big questions, particularly in economics, the question, the field, there's one of the most vibrant fields within uh, economics is on market design. And they talk about market design as setting up rules and they talk about market design in terms of equity. So going back to your question about outcomes, Let's not make the mistake of saying economists are just considering uh, the efficiency story and how you grow the pie and with the assumption that that will trickle down to the poorest and most marginal or the environment. Um, There are are many uh, economists at the top institutions um, and many who are neglected at other places um, who are thinking deeply about these questions. And then equally, the other side of the story is within commons governance, and I think this is changing, there is a, a normative kind of bias or perspective that markets are inherently bad. And this is obvious because we know that if you look at the real origin story of, of commons or social dilemmas, that a large, large part of it is from uh, the incentives and pressures um, associated with market integration and the integration of you know, traditional systems of production into market processes, which we, we all know is motivated um, by livelihood and other kinds of opportunities, um, as well as uh, by the, the kind of profit motives of supply chain actors and people outside of these local regions. And so you know, some commons governance scholars are tuned into the fact that, um, that there is this inherent tension between uh, expanding livelihoods and providing incentives for collective action to connect to markets on the one hand um, versus uh, protecting uh, the uh, communities and and groups from processes of expropriation or grabbing and and things of this nature. Um, But as as a broader point until relatively recent over the last 10 years or so, I'd say that that the um, common scholars tended to see Um, markets is inherently bad or to see them as separate from self-governance in a way that I think in practice is really hard for us to do. So yeah, I see myself as a boundary worker. And one of the things that I really strive to do and sometimes struggle to do is to uh, maintain a depth within each part while also bridging and creating ultimately what I'm trying to do is create an additional space that is um, not just simply a hybrid, um, but is, is a more coherent theory for um, the emergence, the evolution, the performance of markets involving common pool resources. And water fisheries, uh, they're very different, actually, for reasons that you, we could probably flesh out or explore um, today and more broadly. Um, but water in particular, which I've, I've known well and I've now you know, studied in different parts of the world with partners who are embedded within um, regions studying these and, and longitudinal studies, um, I think a really good space for us to, to think through and to develop this theory and to ground it in, in the evidence around that. Um, so yeah, at this stage, uh, I've been called by my economics colleagues uh, operationally indistinguishable from an economist. This is the term they use because it just gives you a sense of how I'm seen. Um, and within, within the commons um, view, I, I think... Uh, I'm seen as the guy who works on markets and, and has, you know, has consistently worked on markets. And, uh, and so 
I've been looking for friends within the commons uh, movement. I think a few of you are here uh, and I, we've been growing. I think the number of us who are explicitly focusing on the, this relationship between uh, the governance of markets and the governance of commons and, uh, and trying to, to kind of build the theory and language for understanding that, that relationship and, it, and its, uh, its dynamics. So let me stop there. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there that you know that we could dig into. Yeah, I mean, some of what you're talking about is what's referred to in psychology as outgroup homogeneity bias, which is the term I find myself referring to again and again. Right? We're all more sensitized to the diversity of our own groups, but when it comes to other groups, whether defined culturally or professionally, we kind of tend to view them all as of a piece, when that's never true. Um, I also like Dustin is. Um, I think you mentioned earlier the idea of kind of market diversity or the diversity of different types of markets. I mean, I'm honestly reminded of Lynn Ostrom's 2005 book, right? Institutional diversity. And to me, it's a similar kind of call to arms that things are different in different places. We shouldn't assume that what's going to work in one place is going to work everywhere. And why not apply that same framing to markets? And maybe I'm projecting that framing, but so what? I am because I like it. I thought you'd never ask, Michael. I mean, my, my PhD was, my, my thesis was called Explaining Institutional Diversity in Emerging Markets for Environmental Flows. So at, of the time, Beautiful. I, I finished in 2010, so it's very much ripe. Um, and I've even thought about like how we can renew our ideas about institutional choice. So it's not you know, just a simple um, you know, challenge of moving beyond markets and states, but moving beyond markets as free markets versus markets as you know, an alternative builds on Carol Rose's work as Leviathan markets, where the government in its infinite wisdom with economic policy experts is able to design these markets. So commons governance scholars have the space in between, which is to say there's a, there are, there is a scope for and limits of self-organization and self-governance within markets. And, uh, and so I think that that's a space that we have a lot to offer is actually looking at the way the people who are participating in markets or affected by markets are involved in their governance. And so I've been thinking quite uh, carefully about this theory of, of institutional choice as well as the need to kind of build strong empirical evidence across, uh, you know, first understanding the nature of variation in um, markets. And I'm starting with water because it's already um, uh, uh, prevalent and um, varies, um, but understanding the variation as a first step to then looking at um, the kind of conditions and context under which people are able to use these markets without getting abused by them. And so, you know, some of that might be like if some of the commons governance scholars community would just say, oh, well, why don't you look at the prevalence of the design principles? And I was like, okay, um, that will be helpful. But, you know, in terms of the units of analysis, in terms of some of these other aspects, I think we have more work to do to, to understand institutional designs, as well as you mentioned process and politically uh, path dependency, um, the political economy of, of, of these markets and the institutions govern these markets and how they change. Uh, so I've thought not just rather what are the static conditions which support these markets, but what are the processes of change? And so you talked about outcomes earlier. There's this really, um, and you talked about Graham Marshall's work earlier. There's this really um, specific phrase used by Douglas North, uh, the economic historian, institutional economist, talking about adaptive efficiency. And it's really interesting because uh, Douglas North, Nobel Prize winner, um, but if you read the work, and I put this out there to the, the community um, to help us if you've got better insight here, 
that term adaptive efficiency is presented as the North Star, but it's really never defined. Um, but with that said, uh, the way that I interpret it, and I think people like Graham Marshall has interpreted it, is about um, the kind of decentralized capacity to solve problems over time. So it's not just like a fixed um, you know, goalpost or finish line of getting the prices right or getting the property rights right. It's about you know, enabling processes of, of institutional change, of conflict resolution, of adaptation, of all these kinds of things. So when you look at markets, if you look at them in a static way or an equilibrium way, as some schools of thought would suggest you do, you really miss what is the direction. So going back to the story in um, the Columbia Basin uh, and, and Murray Darling, when I wrote my book on that in 2015, it was still actually not uh, clear that the Murray Darling story would evolve the way it has as, as such a problematic experience with um, you know, large scale markets involving a comparable resource. And I said, I can't tell you where you know, this will end, but I can say that you, know, you compare the Columbia Basin, and I also involved uh, some analysis of work in the Colorado River with Australia's experience in the Murray-Darling Basin. These are rivers shifting course, whereas places like the Colorado River Basin are now building capacity to solve these problems over time. The Murray-Darling has, has really moved in an, a different direction where it's, it's uh, locked in and it is becoming more entrenched in terms of conflicting positions and you know the scope for for resolving those conflicts. Um, so yeah, just maybe stop there. Um, but those were those were your thoughts triggered by your intervention. Yeah, I feel like we should do a shout out to the 2002 drama, The Commons Book. Now that you mentioned Carol Rose, because that's the, the the first time I read her work was in her in a chapter that she has in that book. Yeah. Let's definitely give a shout out to her. I mean, with with the, the ideas of the uh, Leviathan markets that she put on with kind of an, an earlier stage discussion of hybrids, right? You know, these are, um, and then she was also looking at the, the role that, you know, community-based natural resource management could play in, in markets. Um, so I think that's a really good shout out. And she's also the one who's critiqued this, what she calls natural history of property rights, which assumes this inexorable evolution toward more private rights because, you know, the benefits uh, of doing so outweigh the costs and it leads you to um, the kind of free market environmental outcome. And she suggests that there's, there's a kind of uh, deviation from that natural history or that evolution in which uh, communities are, are uh, fighting back or providing um, some sort of pressure to, to take control over um, property rights and markets. And I think now, I mean, it's kind of previewing or jumping ahead to some of the directions is like, we don't look at this as either private or group level rights, but it is in increasingly uh, involving a nested set of rights where you've got the ability to trade within a specific range of conditions that's conditioned by uh, group level rights, including, you know, the, the viability of the community irrigation systems in which they're embedded. Right. Yeah, I was also thinking about that. So I'm going to have to look up this Leviathan Markets idea afterwards. Um, I also mentioned it because I saw that you cited Tom Tietenberg, who also had a chapter in that book about tradable environmental allowances. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one more question because I don't want to take up too much time on, on the specific topic. But OK, outcomes. What do we think we're trying to do with markets? There's this story that I know you're aware of about allocative efficiency, right, that says, one of the reasons we like markets is because they, you know, here like the highest and best value. They go to the places where they're most valued. Okay, a part of my political ecology brain, which is a part of my brain, 
response to that by saying, well, is that just, right, the concern about uh, the market discourse among comments folks and our folks is that it's, if there's this patina or pretense of politically neutral, politically neutral technical interest, that it's, not, it's, it's just about what's right for everyone. It's not about when, who's like, it's not about some people winning at others' expense. And so sometimes when I hear this idea of allocative efficiency, I think, well, is that sometimes a fancy word for wealthier people who have access to well-functioning markets getting what they want? And that's been, right, the main critique of the market approach, um, or one of them has been the, you know, in, in the context of uh, markets in resources is the consolidation of the rights. That certainly happened in the fisheries sector, and it's been it's been the main critique of like ITQs, et cetera. It's that we're not sure. Maybe the, the you know maybe the ecological outcomes are positive, but we're really concerned about the social outcomes. People are getting alienated from historic fishing grounds, et cetera. And I'm aware that some you know response to this is to say, okay, well, we need to cap. You know, we have a cap overall on how much people can take, but we also need caps on how many rights an individual person can, can collect, et cetera. So there's ways of um, moderating that. But another question I have about outcomes is, so you've talked about kind of cap and trade, right, Dustin? And that's, you know, terminology comes from the pollution sector rather than the natural resource sector. And of course, they're similar. I mean, Tietenberg calls them all tradable environment allowances. So it does make sense to kind of talk about all of these as being one as that kind of like a super category. Here's, and, and this is something I, I, I don't have settled in my mind. In cap and trade, right, the theory goes that, we, yeah, you're absolutely right in your writing that like we need a cap. And that's always been this funny bit about market, the, the discourse about markets and free markets is that, okay, folks, they don't work if you don't have this kind of pretty top-down-ish cap. Like if you don't have that rule, nothing else works. And then that's actually been a big problem with a lot of cap and trade systems is the, is the cap. So why do we want the trade part? If we know we need the cap, why do we want the trade part in, in say, um, um, like the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments in the US about um, acid rain precursors, like why do we not trade? The idea is that there's variation in how costly it is to pollute less. And so if it's costly for you to pollute less, you're not gonna pollute less, you're gonna buy permits from other folks for whom it's less costly. And so there's this idea of like cost efficiency, right? So you're, you're, you're allocating the reductions to people who can, reduce emissions. And so you're, you're for a given level of reduction in pollution, you're doing this in a cost-effective way. I can follow that logic. That kind of makes some sense. Where I get stuck is applying that logic to the natural resource case. Because we're not trying to abate pollution. Uh, Maybe we're still thinking about allocative efficiency, but that's not the same thing as, say, con resource conservation. You used this term water recovery earlier, which I wasn't sure uh, what you meant by that, which is just my own ignorance. But I do wonder about the, the theory that relates market-like arrangements and, and the tradability of rights to conservation behavior. 
I've I've read a little bit of free market, you know, environmentalism. I was about to say fundamentalism, which is only a word you use when you don't like something. Um, that says, you know, people won't conserve unless they can sell their rights, which to me is bonkers. I, I mean, I, it disregards decades and centuries of traditional conservation in communities where things weren't for sale. So for me, I just get stuck in, okay, where does the theory that predicts that the, this arrangement leads to the conservation of water or fish? Because my concern is like, say in the fish case, and I don't mean to keep bringing it back to that, mm-hmm. um, is okay, we're, if we're rewarding folks that are more efficient the way we are in the pollution case, we actually don't, do we want more efficient use of the resource in this case, if what's motivating all of this is that in some ways we're too efficient in taking things out of the ground or the sea. And I don't mean this again, like I'm really, the, the way we started this discussion feels really healthy and it's helping me feel like when I say these things, I'm not, you know, these aren't gotcha questions where I'm like, listen, you pro-market person, have you thought about all these problems? I bet you haven't. Right. Like, but these are things that I struggle with because I don't want to dismiss markets. But then I'm like, OK, panacea thing is a problem. Can we apply the logic from cap and trade and pollution? What are we? And it's interesting that you just mentioned this idea of adaptive efficiency, which, yeah, it's also funny that you call it the North Star since it's Douglas North. I don't know if that was on purpose, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so I read his work and I, it, it was one of these terms that sounds really interesting. And so. You know, some people say we need to minimize transaction costs in markets, but is that just a way of helping, right? Do sometimes we want to increase transaction costs because we don't want, we want to limit what people can buy and sell. So these are the things I think about when I think about what are the outcomes in markets. So if we, if when you're starting with a new market program, like how do you think about these different outcomes we want to promote? And how do you think about the relationship to each other for yourself? Yeah, well, let me start and just make sure that this is unequivocally clear. I am not pro-markets. So the, the distinction to start with, with is the, which, which is I'm not pro-markets. I am uh, starting with you know, the, the, the premise that, that markets are neither inherently good nor bad. And uh, the second premise that there's a diversity of markets. Let me put it this way. They can't all be the worst. Okay. And, and, and I think that will be helpful because then, then we're saying, okay, how did they vary? Why did they vary? And why does that matter? Including the outcomes. Okay. So with that as the concise uh, answer, the second thing would be that this is a position I'm somewhat regularly in, um, you know, position with, especially in discussions with students, of having to ventriloquize or defend free market environmentalism or economic theory. I mean, I, I teach economics of sustainability. So, I mean, and I also struggle with the idea that we have to start by teaching what markets are and how they fail before we talk about all the solutions to that, including the potential that markets are the solution to their own problem. Okay, so, you know, this is where I'm entering this. So what I would say if I were having to ventriloquize for um, my colleagues who are more ideological or normative that markets are the only way, I would say, uh, yeah, it's, it's simple. Um, equity and sustainability are about the cap. 
that sets the boundaries of the market. And once you've done that, your um, enabling reallocation allows you to increase the welfare, the efficiency uh, in terms of allocative efficiency uh, among those who have access. Of course, we know that th there are problems um, with using the cap uh, to, uh, to address these, these outcomes, but that's, that's the theory. And then the other part of the theory is that um, it doesn't matter what the initial assignment of rights is because they can be reallocated. So if you're left out of the table or it's an even playing field, um, you know, then, then you're able to, uh, to find a way to, to buy those rights. And we can obviously see the limitations of that in terms of historically excluded populations uh, trying to buy their ways to equity through a market, right? Um, but the idea there, the, the market design community, and I feel really uncomfortable speaking on their behalf, would probably say, um, you build that into the design of the cap and the regulation, and you find ways to provide minimum access or other kinds of conditions which would address some of these other outcomes. In other words, the, um, <laughs> the, the fairly narrow conventional economic theory would, would probably say that allocative efficiency uh, is, is the focus within the boundaries of the market and that it's our task as you know, economic uh, policy advisors uh, to define those boundaries in a way that address these impacts on equity and sustainability. Um, so that's kind of where I would stop. And then um, maybe moving beyond the, uh, the conventional theory, I think where we're at now, and one of the, I think, real call to action among our community would be is to say it's not whether markets should or should not exist, they simply do exist. And maybe a difference between uh, water and fisheries, and I, and I don't know this because I don't know the fishery side as well, is that you have many instances where, where users themselves have created markets uh, to help them uh, adapt to variability, to uh, the you know, new members in the group, you know, variety of, of changes that will uh, affect the, the incentive, incentive structure for you know, cooperation and resource extraction in specific uh, regions. And you can look from examples like ancient examples like Oman uh, to you know, the studied uh, examples in Alicante and in Eastern Spain um, to a large number of more recent examples in places like Northern Africa. Um, where irrigators have created um, markets that allow for exchange within, you know, the boundaries of their group. Uh, and even in places around the world where formal markets designed by economic experts have failed, um, communities of irrigators have all kinds of exchanges, including those that are um, involving a price mechanism and could be considered a form of informal markets. It's this world of informal markets where I think we need to move past this polarized discussion of should or should not, or what are markets good for, or what are they not? What are they doing? How do they work? Um, that's where I'm focusing. And that's where I think we as a community looking at you know, issues of institutional diversity, issues of fit um, with you know, hypotheses around the importance of, of user and actor participation and governance have so much to offer this space. And, Admittedly, it's taken me all of my career of you know, starting this journey of trying to solve the problem in the Colorado River and learning from innovations that I now have like been really convinced that, that there is 
and kind of global experience with informal markets that we don't understand and we don't have theory to uh, explain. And yeah, so there, in those cases, maybe an example would help. Um, we've talked about a few places like Oman uh, or Algeria and the Northern, Northern Africa where irrigators have set up uh, uh, markets. And when we're dealing with markets in those cases, uh, they're, uh, they're dealing with groundwater principally and groundwater for irrigation um, and irrigation services. And what that means is that uh, the transaction involves time-limited access to a privately owned and operated tube well. And, uh, and so in a situation like this, the, the transaction is for a service rather than for uh, the kind of underlying control of the resource. And uh, some, you know, basic, uh, if you were to take the scenario like this of, of these uh, informal groundwater uh, markets, uh, if you were to talk to economic theorists, you'd say uh, it's fundamentally flawed because the property rights are not clear and, um, and, and the access at the source is illegal. And then, you know, I've done some work. We've had a pilot project in Northern Kenya and we're growing that now with a couple of colleagues and students there. And I've been to some of the sources used for, for different uh, types of markets. And they certainly don't lack property rights. Um, and they certainly don't lack, you know, uh, uh, rules and other um, norms that are governing access and the ability to, uh, to, to sell the water uh, from those sources. And so uh, I think that's where, you know, we as, as common scholars can actually look at the ways in which um, these markets are governed, the property rights are governed so that they, you know, in, in these communities are making uh, choices uh, about, uh, about how these markets work and what their boundaries are and things of that nature. Um, and the only other thing I would say about this is that uh, when we're talking about the traditional commons, you know, research on, uh, like with the big four or five, and you could probably name them better than I, but you know, uh, irrigation and groundwater and forests and fisheries and these other CPRs, that with water, you've got this really interesting uh, process where water as the common pool resource is then fed into um, value chains associated with different goods and services, including irrigation, which we've been talking about, um, but also uh, the conversion of water as a common pool resource into uh, drinking water, which is ultimately a you know, private and excludable service. And so uh, I think that it's a really interesting way for us to look at how CPRs um, become integrated into markets and where are the points along that value chain or supply chain um, that, that users and participants can, can uh, have control or have influence um, to better ensure that you know, the needs for water, the needs for communities, the needs for livelihoods are being met um, before that, that water is, is, is taken from those communities. Yeah, so I promised Ita in the chat that I was all done. Uh, Ita gave me 30 more seconds. So I just, the one connection, I mean, that was really great, Dustin. I think a connection that my brain made while you were talking is, I mean, this, this distinction clearly is very important between formal and informal, right? That's one of the biggest distinctions that we make in the commons field. And when you're talking about these informal market arrangements and the associated rights not being appreciated by these external actors, that reminds me of James Scott and all the work on the, um, you know, it, it, I, it, 
illegibility is a word that comes to my mind, right? The local arrangements are often illegible, particularly informal local arrangements are illegible to external actors. And in James Scott's work, Seeing Like a State, which I think I cite like every other episode in this podcast, um, he talks about how common property is often illegible to external actors because of the complex um, interactions, the complex kind of usurfructory arrangements that people have, or, oh, I'll, I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll use this land for like these two hours, even though it's technically yours. And I think it's interesting that we can apply the same lens to quote, like market arrangements in part, because again, we often think of these things in very different terms as if they're oppositional alternatives, not as if they can both be informal and more ubiquitous arrangements than we appreciate that are then often both underappreciated by external actors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's really well noted. Uh, I've had the same inspiration and, and influence and one could see um, seeing like a market as a direct extension of seeing like a state and, and contingent on a certain theory of the state and state control and efforts to impose legibility um, that are used for markets. But keep in mind, back to this straw man concern, that this is the idea of markets that pr that's put out by that kind of fractionally narrow group of quote unquote conventional economics. I mean, there are a number of other um, perspectives which say, yeah, look, markets uh, can emerge spontaneously or relatively more um, spontaneously in relation to people cooperating and try to solve problems. And there's this kind of whole Hayekian school of, of markets which comes through. Um, but there's a lot more that we can unpack there, but just simply to say it's a good, it's a good analogy, but it also cautions us against um, the version of the markets that depend on, um, you know, the, the idea of the state that's put out by, by James Scott and others. Yeah. yeah talking of reallocation and talking of, uh, uh, you know, water or uh, informal water markets and so on. I think uh, I, I'm going to direct this to the other part of some of your work, which is the review that you mentioned earlier, which, um, which looks at the, the rural urban water reallocation, reallocation being defined as uh, the change in patterns of use when one form of use does not uh, become viable for whatever reason, right? Um, and, uh, and the results of that review leading into the establishment of what you call the global reallocation database. Um, and I was just wondering maybe to start us off, could you just talk a bit about that work and the establishment of this database Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and it's also one of the questions is how are they connected to the same kinds of problems, right? So, I mean, one, the way I see that these two strands of work and, and what we're talking about now is work that we've been uh, developing over the last several years, uh, at least five years, uh, that has been looking at um, patterns of water conflict and cooperation uh, between uh, different groups of users. And, uh, and so, most of the examples we've referenced so far have been dealing with irrigation dominated regions. Um, and so in this uh, work that we're talking about now, we've been focusing on how these irrigation dominated regions are adapting to competition with other sectors and cities in particular. And so um, this project, and I think it's useful, particularly for early career researchers listening to this, you know, we, we had a review is focused on the role of rural water, so water from irrigation and other rural uses 
for thirsty cities and assessing the global experience with uh, water reallocation. Um, so a change in the property rights uh, uh, to move water from irrigation uh, to and other rural uses to uh, urban uses. And this project started uh, really from field work, looking at climate adaptation in transboundary river basins of North America. And we focused in particularly on the Rio Bravo, Rio Grande basin, where I've been doing work for a, lo a long time, about 10 years now. And we were interested in, again, this, you know, question in the commons literature around large scale collective action. Like how do you adapt to the impacts of droughts and um, climate change in over allocated or stressed river basins um, and move beyond those local adaptations. And so we had a project looking at this and a number of, of river basins that were uh, shared by either the US and Mexico or US and Canada. And we, we focused on the Rio Grande Rio Bravo system in particular. And um, this was something of like a ideal setting or an archetype for ass assessing these questions around large scale collective action and adaptation because um, the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo, and I know um, Mike knows this system very well, um, is interesting in the sense that it's got a wishbone structure with uh, two major tributaries, um, one originating on the US side and one uh, originating on uh, the Mexican side um, that then flow into uh, the main stem of the river, which is forming the border between uh, Texas and uh, Northern Mexico. And so we thought this would be an ideal place to assess this large scale collective action uh, problem and adaptation response, because uh, you've got uh, a relatively centralized uh, federal system in Mexico and uh, relatively decentralized by comparison uh, in the US. And so we were, we were looking at the kind of coordination institutions and mechanisms that um, different actors used within and across uh, both sides of this river. And we were very much expecting to find um, the important roles of central governments, like the federal level government and conflict resolution mechanisms and other kinds of risk and benefit sharing mechanisms that dealt with multiple sectors. Um, when we talked to all of the you know, actors and conducted interviews with them about uh, their perspective of the major challenges for adaptation. A few of them talked about uh, the basin level stuff uh, or uh, even talking about drought and climate change. They said one of the big challenges here is adapting to the pressure from cities, which are looking for more water. And, and so we, you know, big result from that project was that, um, the, you know, processes of large-scale uh, collective action adaptation to drought and climate change um, are going to be dealing with, with other related uh, problems and that the scale at which you achieve that large-scale collective action may be relatively localized because um, their competition is happening between rural and urban areas as they adapt. And uh, so we then realized that, you know, the experience in the Rio Grande Rio Bravo was really one example of broader global trends and Again, at the time I'd been asked by uh, the World Bank, again, they, they saw me as the operationally indistinguishable economist um, who cares about institutions and cares about communicating it to people beyond the converted. And so, um, so I often took projects like that and examples like that as an opportunity to learn about um, the problems and um, the issues that 
are being addressed by large organizations like the bank and their clients, that are the people who are funding projects in different countries. And they were interested in water reallocation. And they were expressly interested in water reallocation that didn't involve markets and uh, that didn't um, involve just, you know, reallocation within a sector. So it was a really open uh, problem. And I said, look, I've just come out of the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo. And I think that the Achilles heel for large scale collective action is, uh, and, and in this case for water reallocation is um, competition between cities and agriculture. And so we did a project which had two components. One were a set of deep dives across uh, four regions, which had experienced uh, recent non-market uh, reallocation. So non-market in this case, administrative decisions uh, by um, state or national governments to reallocate water from uh, rural uh, or agricultural regions to cities. Uh, so we did these deep dives, basically examining the political economy of those uh, reallocation projects, what drove them, kind of impacts across different groups and, and how um, the ensuing conflicts were addressed. Uh, and in parallel, we did a systematic review uh, to better understand uh, global experiences with uh, this kind of, uh, of adaptation and reallocation. And, uh, and this is, you know, part of the goal there um, was to like, again, this will be familiar to many of the people who've listened to other other podcasts, is to build uh, a database that provides us the research infrastructure uh, to uh, understand first the variation in experience, and then to, to try to make you know middle range um, uh, theoretical contributions about the conditions and context under which um, these reallocation projects are better or worse. And coming back to outcomes, you know, in terms of multiple dimensions and the trade-offs between them. So whether um, this was done in a cost-effective way, but more importantly, whether this was done in a way that was perceived to be equitable and through um, you know processes that would enable future adaptation rather than lock in groups to, to really conflicted positions. So we built a database um, that was informed by this systematic review. And if you've seen our paper on uh, rural water for thirsty cities, you'll see that you know, we were able to say that this is actually a global phenomenon. It's prevalent. Uh, it takes multiple forms, although actually markets are relatively rare and partly because of that boundary issue we talked about before, as you move water longer distances, um, the equity problems become more more severe and the ability of markets to, to, uh, to facilitate adaptation or um, cooperation in those settings are much more restricted. And so um, the other kind of key finding that we had was that actually a lot of the experience with uh, water reallocation from uh, rural to urban areas is missing from literature. And part of that was an artifact of our search uh, and research design, the kinds of keywords we were using, but also part of it was that there is this blind spot, this kind of missing um, uh, set of, uh, of, of experiences that involve, again, the informal processes of moving water from rural to urban areas, uh, such as um, the use of tanker trucks, which are uh, accessing water in uh, peri-urban or rural wells and transporting that water uh, to meet the needs of peri-urban or um, or urban dwellers in places like Kathmandu where such imports can constitute 20% of uh, the water supply. And so there are these blind spots. And so we use that uh, research infrastructure as a first step um, to, to identify um, the, the relevant you know, kind of concepts, variables, measures for understanding uh, patterns of conflict and cooperation over, 
over water between cities and, and uh, rural areas and to set the basis for addressing these blind spots and trying to understand uh, the broader range of experience with informal reallocation. So we've got some ongoing work now um, that is, is looking at uh, this issue. And um, one of the big issues, which you, know, you and I have obviously discussed, Ida, is that in these experiences of water conflict between rural and urban areas, um, you have a spatial gradient, you have a social gradient of inequality between rural and urban areas. And it's very complex because, you know, the connections involve migration and livelihoods and, you know, broader demographic and other processes. Um, but it's, I think, a very important space for us to contribute to the wider debates in commons governance about the relationship between inequality and collective action, the conditions under which um, inequality, in this case, across the rural urban gradient, um, either uh, enables or inhibits uh, cooperation um, in uh, the processes of reallocation, and in turn, how responses to uh, and, and approaches to reallocation impact those pre-existing inequalities. So now, you know, we're developing a, a Thirsty Cities program of research, um, which is really um, aiming to um, build our understanding of that relationship between inequality and collective action in the context of the, the kind of competition conflicts between cities and agriculture and watch the space, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, one of the other takeaways that I had from reading that particular paper when you had initially shared it with me, uh, Dustin, was just the sheer pervasiveness of this long distance water transfer networks that, right? I mean, I think you mentioned some figures in the paper and uh, it talks about 13,000 kilometers, 383 million people being served by such, um, you know, or influenced by such transfers and so on. And as someone who's been working with small in-depth case studies, I think just that that sheer scale of the, the network itself was something that we, uh, that astonished me. But also, I think what 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 it made me think really was uh, when we think about all of these long distance transfers as applied to our particular case. So, for example, in my work on Bangalore, um, one of the things we blame long distance transfers for is, of course, the fact that it came from a post uh, it came from a colonial lineage into a post colonial city, but also the fact that these reduced dependencies on local lakes. Uh, contributing to their decline and therefore, you know, contributing to some of the water scarcity that this particular city is facing. Um, we also talk about how long distance water transfers, like you said, are not very equitable because they involve uh, reallocations of water from rural agrarian landscapes into uh, large cities with huge populations, often through very harebrained schemes. Like in India, for example, they were talking about diverting rivers and and uh, putting that water into an underground reservoir and then bringing that into Bangalore. I mean, it was ridiculous. But but then what I was I was sort of thinking was uh, also what you mentioned in the paper about the fact that a lot of this is also myth and perception based. And we do not have enough data to really talk about whether or not these are equitable or sustainable. What we do have are some cases that might point to that, but you also point to other cases that in, in which, you know, these reallocations have worked more effectively. Um, and I was just sort of wondering whether, you know, what would be some of these uh, 
reasons why these differences exist. I mean, of course, there is context, but also uh, I'm wondering if it is something to do with urbanizing and peri-urban, rural-urban interfaces. And just... Yeah, it's, it's one of those um, really good questions. And I would have the, the typical humility to be cautious about generalizing here. Yeah. One of the um, factors associated with uh, the, the, the cases experiencing uh, success, let's define that in terms of um, the you know, perceptions of, of an equitable outcome. Let's define that in terms of you know, ongoing access and, and livelihoods. Um, and, and, you know, and, and finally, you know, success in terms of you know, the willingness and ability of, of the different um, communities to continue to work together and solve their problems over time. Um, that yeah, the 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 approach there would often involved a relatively you know strong uh, social immobilization political resistance to these projects, followed by the development of what we call um, maybe it's a euphemism benefit sharing uh, models that compensate the quote unquote source region and do so not in just a way of like, again, back to this conventional economic idea of compensating individuals for the opportunity costs associated with their lost water. So making them whole in terms of paying them for the, the lost crop production or whatever, um, but benefit sharing in a way that actually uh, focused on um, sustaining ongoing rural development in the source region and thinking more uh, holistically or comprehensively about um, not simply just compensation, but again, benefit sharing. Um, and there's analogy, there are analogies here to other large infrastructure, dam building and otherwise. Um, and so, so it was a matter of, of having um, the space for that political and, and social mobilization, and then uh, the capacity to respond to it with, um, you know, core decisions and, and benefit sharing models that went beyond uh, simply making the individuals whole and focused on. I think we, we have a, a line that, that says that, you know, focus on compensating um, the community rather than the individual. So it's looking at group level outcomes rather than just the individual ones. An example of this, um, a really interesting example of this is in Northern Mexico. In um, again, the Rio, um, Grand Rio Bravo, um, but in Northeast Mexico in the city of Monterrey, rapidly growing city and uh, has grown from about 300,000 in 1950 to about 3 million in 1990, um, seen as a you know, kind of strategic hub for uh, international trade and you know, priority for national economic development in Mexico. And, um, and, and this um, urbanization in Monterrey happened after in the previous legacy of rural development and investing in uh, irrigation in the region. And so these two um, visions of development were coming into conflict and um, the city of Monterrey needed to increase uh, its uh, surface water supply and, and reduce its dependence on groundwater and have more resilient supplies during you know, droughts and other uh, impacts. And so they proposed a, a large interbasin or a kind of cross tributary scheme that would move water about 100 kilometers um, 
and take water that had traveled down the tributary to irrigation and divert it basically to the city. And at the time, this was uh, first you know, planned, financed, constructed in the early 1990s. Uh, it was described as La Guerra de Agua. Uh, de Agua. And, and um, there was a really strong resistance from the downstream irrigators uh, who said, yeah, this is basically taking away our life and livelihood. And they resisted it. It led to corruption charges and all kinds of other uh, concerns. And uh, whereas in the early stages of this project's development, uh, irrigators or even the downstream state government were left out of the negotiations. Uh, the responses to this uh, you know, uh, political and social unrest was to bring uh, these groups and their voices to the table and to come up with compensation schemes, which uh, included really maybe some would see like an overcompensation for the impacts of this uh, a new um, transfer project things like paying for farmers uh, for their lost crop production, uh, providing alternative water supplies from treated wastewater, building a compensation dam, so another infrastructure, this whole portfolio, um, and then investing in irrigation modernization. And such that when we interviewed you know, the affected groups 25 years on from this project, it was no longer La Guerra. It was now seen as our dam. And um, something that was shared. And, and so this was a model of uh, benefit sharing that you know, would uh, address some of the equity concerns associated with these kinds of projects, um, doing it uh, admittedly in a way that's relying on uh, some environmentally damaging infrastructure and other kinds of unsustainable practices. Um, but doing it in, a, I think the take the takeaway lesson here in, in terms of how you get to better outcomes in situations like this is, you know, enlarging the boundaries uh, to, to move from seeing these cities as isolated to seeing them as part of rural urban systems and, and governing them at, uh, at multiple levels within and, and across those kind of sectoral boundaries. So um, whether that is something can be applied around the world, I think the, the short answer is no, because you have to have certain kinds of conditions and assumptions in place in terms of the ability to mobilize. I mean, uh, I won't give other examples, but there are many places in the world where you just lack um, the capacity to do that at the scale needed to promote change. Um, and then also having the capacity and the financing and the resources in order to uh, achieve this kind of compensation or benefit sharing model. Um, but it is something that we think will be important in terms of identifying a broader range of, of kind of risk and benefit sharing models and seeing that as one way of, kind of operationalizing this vague idea of nesting and, uh, and the relationship between you know, government and governance at multiple levels um, by more carefully kind of mapping out uh, the political economy of these projects and, and trying to strengthen um, the, yeah, the approaches to solving these conflicts. Yeah, the first ever academic paper I wrote was, um, I mean, co-authored was, uh, look, was exactly making this argument that you need to look at urban and rural systems um, together and minus the dichotomies involved. Um, but so, in the interest of time, I think I'm going to uh, I'm going to jump to the, you know, to, to the thing that you've been hanging us with a lot of suspense for you know, <laughs> for quite some time now <laughs> i think i've snuck i've snuck in the answers already but i can, I can you say did more. you did but you know it was it was like oh i have these things to talk about but i'm going to 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wait for, you, for the conversation to go in there. But no, so you mentioned a lot of times that this particular study that we were talking about, the systematic review was something that was commissioned by the World Bank. And uh, also in, in your own profile, uh, you talk a lot about the, uh, the interface that you do between uh, these uh, non-academic uh, agencies, the World Bank, the United Nations, and so on. And, and how that has been an integral part of your journey so far. So um, maybe, maybe you could talk about how, uh, you know, you got involved with that and really uh, what you see are the distinctive features that, you know, you've experienced. And I also remember you telling me that your answers are going to shock us. So go for it. Oh, wow. I've got a big, you know, part um, to meet here. Um, yeah. So let's see here. I think that the, for the, the broader group, you know, the, well, maybe we can edit this. Let me just think of the right entry point to your, your very kind of high stake question here. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've worked with a number of uh, international organizations. I've also worked with uh, a number of local partners. And, uh, and I think uh, the latter would be relatively common in our our research community and building strong local partnerships. And it's something that I'm really investing in, you know, in the places I've worked from the beginning, uh, staying engaged in projects and long-term collaborations and, and also um, building new ones or strengthening connections to existing groups uh, who are working in related themes and in light of the concepts and context that we've been talking about coming up with, you know, the shared research infrastructure and language uh, to understand diversity and, and similarities across these different regions. So that's the more, I think, common uh, experience. The work at the international level is, you know, in part designed, you know, back to that idea of being a double agent, um, is designed to, to try to, you know, bend the curve of these large organizations with huge resources and influence to doing something that's a little, at least a little less bad. Um, but it's also, I think, for the audience listening, probably the most important thing that I would want to convey here is that um, when we talk about the World Bank, or if we talk about the OECD, or if we talk about the UN, you know, we're talking about these organizations. And, uh, and there's a sense that there's, there's a tendency to kind of think of them as monoliths that uh, embody a kind of ideology. And I think that there are structural reasons why we should do that. And I'm actually going to come back to that in a moment. But my experience has been more nuanced in the sense that I see these organizations as collections of people. Many of those people have now come up in a world where governing the commons is 10, 20, 30 years old. They've read a lot more than we think they've read. They're interested in um, trying to solve problems in terms of multiple outcomes, not just kind of narrow version or vision of development or efficiency. Um, and I think they're genuinely interested in the quote unquote actionable knowledge um, that can help to, to design projects and programs um, to be more effective and to be more sustainable. Uh, it's not everyone, um, but I've interacted with a lot of people. And I think uh, it's not just a matter now of saying these are enlightened people. I think that there are a lot more um, people who are, who are allied with um, the kind of research program and some of its normative underpinnings than we want, want to give credit. So it, it takes a lot of uncomfortable discussions to you know, move past uh, the, the, the barriers between uh, our world and, and those worlds. Um, but I I've found at least 
some of those projects to be incredibly fruitful and and in terms of making an impact on investment strategies, working with communities and things of this nature. And I'd observed that you know people like Eleanor Ostrom wrote discussion papers for um, the bank and, and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, it's about people, not just organizations. And uh, there are good and, and uh, bad contacts to work with in those cases. Um, so I think that that's been an important part of my experience. Uh, the other part that I would probably say is uh, that working um, with partners in places like the World Bank on the project, like the water reallocation project, does give me a chance um, to understand um, the problems and um, the responses as they're perceived by the people who are um, bringing a lot of resources to these uh, these places. And so I, I feel one uh, duty to some degree is to try to uh, avoid the worst outcomes and even provide a broader range of outcomes. So going back to institutional diversity, you know, moving past a kind of simple binary of we're creating uh, a market-based system or we're creating a water user association or community level uh, approach um, without actually thinking through how to tailor that or match that or fit that with uh, local conditions. And I think there is a lot of receptivity. Where it breaks down, I would say, is that there is, you know, no matter how much uh, I try or others try, um, a kind of understandable need for, you know, a simplicity heuristic of like, what, what is the option that we can apply here? And what is the range or domain over which we can apply it? And um, there's an interest in having really um, kind of clear uh, answers to that. And I don't think that we can necessarily do that unless we've got the longer term projects and, and relationships with these organizations that move beyond the kind of typical uh, program of work with those organizations, which is about a year or so. Uh, let me see, there was one other thing that I wanted to add here. I'll have to get back if I, if I can, then we can edit this back You were in. mentioning the fact that we look at them as monoliths. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I've tried to explode that uh, idea, um, but I'm going to come back to the monolith at the very end. There was one more point that I was going to mention about. Um, yeah. So the final point that I would um, mention is that uh, if we talk about these patterns of conflict and cooperation between cities and agriculture, uh, or if we talk about um, the importance of governance for using markets without getting abused by them in response to those kinds of conflicts, um, then the corollary is that you know, governance and institutions matter. And for groups like this, um, they have choices about whether they invest in uh, the hard infrastructure or the soft infrastructure. And one of the big arguments, like my mission over the last 10 years or so of engaging with those groups has been to say, quite simply, that there are returns on investment for the soft infrastructure, um, that there are high returns on investment in the soft infrastructure in, in terms of you know, supporting, enabling uh, uh, effective governance that's locally tailored. Um, but um, those investments are risky because we don't know how to do them well, um, because prescription is dangerous. And so I think as a community, uh, I, I think an exciting frontier, which we might actually be able to do well now if we, we want to, um, is, is to, you know, to draw from theories of fit and to provide, you know, insights about um, the kinds of 
um, strategies that will be relevant in different circumstances or the kinds of diagnostic processes that would be useful to uh, identify the most common blind spots. And if one of those messages is simply to embrace informality and to look for a capacity and energy where it exists, I think that's a huge win for us. It's a matter of you know, trying to reinforce existing capacities rather than sideline them. I mean, coming back to the panacea idea, it's like panaceas don't just replace each other. They, they, they overlap and they become a cocktail of, of panaceas. And so um, one of the messages here would be, um, can we both avoid uh, the imposition of new panaceas and preserve um, the institutional diversity and the capacity that it brings uh, to these different regions? And I think the answer is yes. So I would say uh, engage because there are people on the other side of this divide who really want to do better. Um, and then the second thing I would conclude is we need to be humble because we're not going to be able to, uh, to provide the, the kinds of panaceas or silver bullets that many in that side will, will want, but we can do something that's, I think, more uh, conservative or measured when it comes to uh, thinking about new heuristics or diagnostics that can identify blind spots and Im improve the kinds of decisions um, that they're making. Uh, and then I think the final thing to say is that I'm kind of done with it for now. Um, I've had my chance and I think it's time for the next group. And back to that structural piece, my experience on this was I'd, I'd done about uh, three projects, two of which I'd led. Um, one was on, so just to kind of give an arc, uh, I did one project that was looking at water allocation reform led by a colleague. And then I led projects on informal water markets and then uh, the rural to urban uh, water reallocation. Justin, you mentioned earlier that you would suggest other people, other academics engage in this space. How would you suggest to say a PhD student who's just wrapping up, how, do you, how would you suggest they try to do that? I think for a lot of people, it can feel like this foreign thing with different criteria, different cultures, or for someone, you know, not necessarily an early career researcher, but for people at different career stages, what were some of the strategies that worked for you? I mean, I feel like for a lot of people, it's like, well, I was doing this and then it kind of evolved organically and it's hard to, to prescribe that, but I'm just curious about what your thoughts are here. Yeah, I'm really careful about this because I think um, there isn't a generalizable way to break in if that's what they're trying. Um, and, it, and it really comes down to effective mentors who are engaged. Um, but the nice thing I would say is now we have access to broader networks and you can find people at these organizations and focus at the level of the individual and the people whose work you find um, inspiring or accessible and engage directly with them or make connections with people who they're working with, who you have connections with. Um, certainly don't be shy. And uh, in my case, it's not really, I mean, it's just one more recommendation for good mentors uh, who provide opportunities. In my case, I never would have expected uh, to, to have the chances to work with the bank, but I had uh, a really helpful mentor who had uh, been working in, in the bank for a long time and, and gave me some insights about how uh, that, that work um, could, could develop. And, and I was able to do that. And I don't think that that's particularly uh, useful for next generation. Um, but the other thing to say, and I, I'm not too worried about getting overloaded here, is just reach out. I'd love to hear from you, and I'd be happy to tell you what has 
worked for me and what hasn't worked for me. Um, but I'm increasingly at the stage now where uh, I'd say, don't listen to people like me because my path won't be your path and, um, and find your own way. Um, but if you're encouraged to do it, just get after it and keep, keep trying and, um, and find the people who will give you the, will, will provide the mentorship and support for your journey. Thanks for that, Justin. I mean, I appreciate the, well, I just appreciate your, the humility there. I feel like, Justin, there's a lot, you know, when you get to like mid-career, you're asked like, how, you know, how did this work for you, et cetera. And we kind of underemphasize what I'll articulate here is survivorship bias, right? Like this worked for me, but you're, you're not aware of other people who tried maybe the same thing I did. And because I was lucky and they weren't, you know, my advice not apply to you, might not apply to you. So I feel like we always need to be aware of these things, you know, because the older we get, the more people are looking to us for answers, quote unquote. It's like, well, I can tell you what worked, but you also have to find your own way. And I think that's the responsible thing. I don't think you're, you know, there's a tendency to want to help more than we kind of can sometimes. Yeah, I've just come. I mean, I wouldn't say just come, but I've increasingly, you know, recognized that. And, uh, and I've been listening in other settings of people saying, oh, well, you know, just do an internship or, you know, find uh, a way to, to do a valuable small scale project. And, and it's like, mm, I'm not sure that, you know, that's going to work for everyone. And, uh, and certainly don't, I, a lot of the stuff that I've done has been a, a function of uh, accidents and luck. And the only thing that is somehow reproducible is around mentorship. And I guess the part and to sharpen the advice that I gave earlier is uh, be really proactive in building mentorship relationships. And if you're interested in having these connections um, to key organizations or what have you, broaden your view of what it counts to be as a mentor. Uh, and you know, going back to my origin story or experience uh, in the Columbia Basin, I had an experience there where I had a, like a, an all-star outstanding academic committee for four of the five positions. And then the fifth position was a practitioner who would basically say, this doesn't make sense. This isn't working. And from then on, I always just tried to keep practitioners and partners as, as mentors. And I feel like that's the part of my experience that's most accessible and actionable is um, try to build yourself a mentorship network and uh, diversify that beyond the kind of conventional, you know, assumption of star academic or what have you. And if this, this is a, a kind of card to any future students who want to work with me, I put a lot of um, focus on mentorship, increasing focus on mentorship and how to do it well. And one aspect of that is to, to think of a mentorship network that's not simply limited to uh, the academic. So hopefully that is uh, constructive. It doesn't mean it's easy to build those relationships, um, but actually some of the lessons from Commons research are pretty helpful there, whether it's like norms of reciprocity, understanding how to align your work with something that's of interest to others. I actually think that is something that I've learned from experience. Um, and you have to be really careful because the other side of that fine line is self-exploitation and doing stuff that really isn't um, going to serve your own interests in the long term. Um, so you need a mentor to help you navigate that as well and trust your instincts too. Yep, I totally resonate with that. A lot of, I mean, a lot of the most excellent guidance I've received academically, non-academically, and also shattering some of these 
these things that you assume about monolithic organizations. So, for example, like the UN Habitat uh, writes the world, uh, produces the World Cities Report, and I've been recently involved in that. And I went in with the assumption that you need to write very positive stuff uh, because it's the UN Habitat and because it is a World Cities Report. Um, and I think it was only because you had a mentor who was already involved in the process to tell me that, you know, that might not be the case. You can actually write more uh, critical, uh, uh, you know, ideas about a particular project, about a particular thing, maybe something like nature-based solutions or whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, you can still make that impact felt. And I thought that was wonderful. And I also testimony to excellent mentorship. The IPCC report, for example, talks about uh, some of the decolonizing uh, and, and the post-colonial urban work that we've done so for example and I think it's just just I mean down to a mentor to give you that that kind of range and visibility and uh, help you navigate these systems if you are interested in doing that. Absolutely I mean one of the postscripts or footnotes to that for my own experience is that in the early days I kind of had the sense that this was somewhat tokenistic that they were saying okay well we hear the institutions matter and we hear the political economy matters, so let's tick that box and just keep it on the margins or whatever. Mm. Um, but I, I think that there is uh, a genuine, you know, demand now. There's this, you know, need for uh, these perspectives and this kind of analysis, and for it to be mainstreamed. So, yeah, I think there will be a lot of opportunities, and as you say, you can you can rely on some good uh, advice as well as your instincts in terms of. Uh, contributing in these contexts without compromising on your integrity. And my uh, PhD committee and my supervisor always emphasize integrity as the North Star. So that's where I think you can use, you know, that idea is to make sure that that you're not compromising on, you know, the ethics and other aspects of the work that you're doing when you get into these spaces just to try to have influence. I've been wanting to ask this, who was your PhD supervisor? <laughs> um, I, I think Mike might know this. I'm, I've worked with Adela Schlager and Carl Bauer. So I had um, with Adela the uh, perspective on obviously commons governance, but we focused a lot on institutional economics. And then with Carl Bauer, um, law and economics and economic history. And I see myself um, as going, you know, as kind of bringing together those perspectives so back to the kind of path dependency and property rights story, economic history and path dependency from Carl and then property rights, transaction costs, institutional change from, from Adela. And uh, they're both amazing. Thanks, Dustin. I mean, we could go on talking, I guess, but uh, I think we are already, what, 15 minutes past the time that you've allotted for this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, today. yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I hope that it was not too, uh, I, I had listened to a few of these and I was already at least starting with my childhood, like wading in creeks, and stuff like that. And <laughs> you, guys, you, you guys got me ready to go a little bit deep into the deep end, which was which was good as well. It was wonderful. But before we close, do you have anything else that we might not have covered in the interview that you'd like to talk about? Uh, no, I mean, I guess the thing that I would offer, and maybe we could slice this in if it makes sense, is that, you know, that the question that you might have or that others listening might have is like, how, how is this, how are these, these themes, you know, particularly around thirsty cities and markets connected? And so, you know, back to that, um, that, that broader theory development contribution. The way I see this is that um, we're looking at the, the kind of 
new geographies of conflict and cooperation in commons governance in the context of thirsty cities. We're finding whether it's climate change, urbanization, market integration, you know, pressures that are really uh, stressing uh, long-lived local governance. And you know, both of you have looked at these aspects really carefully. And, uh, and so that part of the research is trying to understand the hot spots and blind spots of, of conflict and cooperation and these uh, key you know, challenges for large-scale collective action. And then the work on markets, I see as assessing one of the large and diverse range of institutional responses to these pressures. So starting relatively um, localized with, with markets, but then increasingly how markets have been addressed at uh, larger, larger, uh, for larger systems to deal with competition between sectors, um, you know, between groups and so forth. And there, rather than you know, start with the theory of institutional choice that focuses on uh, markets versus states or markets, self-governance in states, I'm saying there within markets is this immense institutional diversity and um, allows us to uh, look in the context of global experience with uh, market-based approaches to commons governance at first, the diversity of institutions associated with those experiments or those efforts, um, and, and then link that with outcomes to inform our middle range theory building around how you can use markets without being abused by them. And uh, so the final step of this is obviously to look at this in terms of path dependency and pathways um, and over long periods um, to try to assess um, whether regions confronting these challenges and experience, experimenting with markets and other institutional responses are, are moving on a trajectory to better or worse outcomes in a multidimensional sense in terms of the trade-offs that we've been talking about. Uh, so that's how I think about the coherence of my research program. Thanks, Dustin. Yeah, we'll probably have to get you back some other time and talk about path dependencies now. Oh, yeah, sorry, I dodged <laughs> that. I'm not sure I ever really... Oh. <laughs> I satisfied your question about outcomes either, Michael, but I, I guess I was just trying to use it as a chance to say that um, economists don't just think about efficiency. Yeah, fair enough. It sounds like we just need to get a beer at some point. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be good. Where are you, by the way? I, I thought you were in, in New Hampshire, but then some time zone issue clued me off to the fact that you may not be there. Uh, no, I'm spending a lot of time in San Francisco these days, but I'm still at Dartmouth. Okay, excellent. Well, enjoy, yeah. enjoy the Bay and uh, Ahita, enjoy uh, the, the Sheffield weather. <laughs> it's getting better. It's getting better. Yeah, I, I was always pretty bullish about it. I liked um, everything about English culture and whatever. Thanks for the time, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We, we've enjoyed it as well. Yes, thank you, Dustin. Thank you for listening, everyone. You can find more episodes as well as our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. In Common is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or the IASC. 